Hello wonderful listeners. I hope you enjoyed our previous episode. We had such an insightful workshop with Jennifer Mukumbi and I want to thank all of you for your positive feedback and engagement. Your support means the world to us. Now if you thought the last episode was exciting, you are in for a treat today. In this new episode, we'll be building upon the ideas and discussions from our previous topic. We'll be exploring diving deeper and perhaps even challenging some of our previous conclusion but before we jump in i'd like to take a moment and express my gratitude to our sponsor omochi creative your input truly helps shape the direction of this podcast all right let's get started Um, and you'd mentioned Black Lives Matter earlier, and that's kind of, I wanted to pick up on that. Um, so I'm sure we all remember what happened in the summer of 2020 um, with the Black Lives Matter protest that erupted virtually at the same time all over the world. And at the, when that happened, we saw a reckoning in most in- industries about their own structure, structural racism and um, inequalities within their own organizations, and including in the publishing industry. Um, so I'm sure you're aware that in 2020, the Black Writers Guild in the UK wrote an open letter to publishers asking them, or demanding really, um, them to address their own inequalities and structural racism and to make visible changes. And it's 2023 now, three years almost to the month since the first protest happened. Do you feel that there's a change in publishing since then and there's a shift um, towards telling more diverse stories? And if there is, how do you feel African writers can capitalize on this demand? Um, it, that's a very difficult question to answer because there are good things that have happened as a result of that and there are things that I'm questioning as a result of, of, of that. So one of the good things that have happened is that they've published a lot of black writers. I mean, a lot of black writers have been published in Britain and in America. However, they've focused on race. Every book that is coming out is about race. And that comes out, of course, out of the killing of um, George Floyd. Floyd. So uh, publishers, for some reason, have focused mainly on race. And I suspect that within time, the world will be fed, fed up with books on race and then we'll be buggered, yeah. you know, uh, because now it's a trend. And you write a book about race and racial inequalities, it's going to be published. The other thing that you didn't know, the British were publishing more Africans than they were publishing other black people for some reason. I don't know why. Okay. So now they've backed off a little bit and they are publishing more other black, which is fair because they were publishing more black African writers because they would be published first in America and Americans have done all the hard work and then they reissue in Britain. And there was, for some time, there was a problem where it seemed like they preferred to publish African writers, but now they're catching up. So um, every publisher now was looking 
I swear to you, they were writing to us. Do you know any uh, any African writers that need publishing? Can you recommend uh, a, a book? Can you uh, immediately after they were just desperate to publish? The problem was that they would publish you to take a box. And that's dangerous. When publishers publish you just to tick a box to say at the end of the year we've published so many black writers, that doesn't mean they've put a lot of money into your book. Sometimes you can find a book published by a major publisher which is shoddily edited. You look at the cover and it's, you know, and even the binding itself is not good. So you're published, but... Do you know what I mean? So there was, I was quite aware of that, that there are people who are being published because people want to, to top up their numbers. So there is, and you don't want to be published because of that. Um, so it is a wonderful thing that now they are taking on a lot of black editors and it will improve. But what people didn't talk about was something that I noticed when I started lecturing in Britain. So now, here in Uganda, we study English as a subject. So we go to class, and the teacher is all about nouns, verbs, and whatever. And so we speak a certain kind of English, formally. At home, we speak another English. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, in Britain, ki black kids that are born in Britain speak their kind of English. But it's not the English we learn in school. Now, I'll tell you that uh, the first day I arrived in Britain, uh, my friend... Say, come, let's, let me show you around the shops. And we were buying uh, spices. And I went up to this guy from um, Mancunian. And I stated something like, you know, when you go to Britain, you tune your best English. You reach into <laughs> your depths. I am among English people. I must pull out my best English. And so I pulled out my best I said, ah, can I have some cooking aids? <laughs> and the guy, what is, she, what is she on about? I said, can I have some cooking aids? Uh, and he turned to the, because the African face and the words coming out of me didn't match. Didn't correlate. And then... Um, my friend Martha said, she means spices. <laughs> yeah, I was trying to impress. Are you kidding me? Uh, and the guy said, oh, shoot up. I, I didn't understand. He was saying shut up. Yeah. Also but they said shut up. Accents. They are difficult to understand. Yeah. The so, accents. The, the English that they were speaking and the English I was speaking in even my ex-husband, who was black British, I mean, would sit in the car and say, um, 
you was supposed I said, you mean you were? <laughs> and it say, Jennifer, it's my language. I can do whatever I want with it. But that's the difference, okay? So when British black kids came to studying English, they stayed away from the language because they didn't speak the Queen's English. Here in Uganda, you learn the Queen's English. And therefore, your attitude towards the language is very different from the attitude of a black British child towards that language. So whenever I was teaching English or literature in classes, all the black students came from two places, Africa and the Caribbean. Black British kids did not turn up for the English subject. They went to other subjects. So you have to do literature at university level or English to become an editor. But the, there was a bottleneck at A level. Black British kids didn't do study literature. So they didn't turn up to university. So when he, um, the publishers recruited uh, editors, they had only access to white people or Africans, but Africans, you know, we don't do that. We do law, engineering, medicine, you, medicine um, because no parent, no African parent is good. What are you doing? English and, and, and uh, you know, and so um, you rarely got them. Thank you so much, Jennifer. That is really interesting, especially hearing your insights into working with black African writers or students as opposed yeah. to black British writers yeah. and students, because there is an immense difference. There um, is. Which often to white editors, they may not see that. They'll yes. see, oh, we need a black writer. Let's just get And they just tick the box. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and I wanted to go back uh, to talk about um, the issue of availability of maybe not just your books, but other books by African writers um, in East Africa and the, and the African continent. Because often when they're published by Western publishers, they're not easily accessible here. They're pricey. Um, they may not, they may arrive later. Um, and how do, I guess I'll address this to you um, personally, how do you navigate this as a Ugandan writer, knowing that your audience is here, but your books are published in the West? How do you navigate this? Um, I was lucky. You know, I go on about how my book was rejected uh, a, a thousand times in Britain and I was told it was too African. But I was lucky that my book was edited in Africa. Okay. So when Chintu arrived and it was the way it was, somehow I've been accepted that that's the kind of author I am, that all my books are going to look like that. But that was because... Chintu was edited in, in, in Kenya by two British black Zimbabwean women. Yeah. Um, and then it traveled back, you know. But so now the, the, the industry or my publisher is kind enough to have changed to, to accommodate me. But as I, I said, that is because I sell books in Uganda. They don't just accommodate you. There's a reason why they're going to do that. So, but now that my books are getting around a bit, other publishers are learning to be more 
more tolerant. Mm -hmm. But that's mostly in Britain. America, they don't care. They really don't. If you don't do what they want, they won't publish you. This is why I have the first woman and then I have a girl is a body of water. You know, they were like, no, it won't sell in our market. Or it's uh, Manchester happened. There they call it, let's tell the story properly. Americans are very unbending. They are not interested in the other worlds. So I've got an Indian friend I, I met in, in Berlin, and she had written a novel where her character was in India, and then he left and went to Pakistan. And the agent said, no, let the character leave India and come to the US. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, they said rewrite it. Yes. and. Americans, that's why, um, look at Chimamanda's books, okay? Most of us believe that Half, um, Half a Yellow Sun is her best book. But guess which book sold most? Americana. Americana. Now you've got your answer there. Now, you were asking me what kind of book will sell. If you are money, looking for money, write a story, Ugandan, then American. You will sell. In America, you know, because for them, they are a world. You know, you, they sang, we are the world. They meant it. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. I've been talking to other African uh, authors, and they are starting to count the books. And even African authors who are in America are saying they are selling more books in Britain because Britain has the Commonwealth. So Britain sells books in Britain, but sells them in Africa, Anglo-Africa as well. So they are making more money because now people are realizing there's a market for African novels in Africa, you know? But um, you add up the, the sales from America and you're like, mm. so I changed my title for this? Do you know? So Americans are so close, they want to read about themselves. Um, so that's what you need to know. This is excellent to know. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Um, and I guess I'll go on to my final question now. Um, so I feel like in the past 10 years, we've seen a shift in the type of African novels that we see coming out uh -huh. um, from international, pub international publishers. Um, so not even 10 years ago, we had the Afropolitan type story, like you referenced yeah, yeah. earlier, um, yeah. Americana, you know, the African going to the West and encountering racism for the first time. Um, but I feel like your novels have really shifted that paradigm. Um, and now we see Africans telling our own stories on yeah. our own terms. Yeah. And I'd be interested to know what are your hopes for the trajectory of African literature and the publishing industry going forward now? Okay. So one of the things that I would like to see is Africans writing commercial novels. For some reason, we write literary novels. They don't sell. No, honestly. Commercial novels, this is why Dan Brown is so, uh, so rich. Yeah. 
you know? Da Vinci Code. Uh, and it's those people's money that they used to pay someone like me. But because our literature started in the 50s and 60s speaking to the colonial world, we got into this way of writing mostly literary. So we need to diversify. We need people to write romances. We need people to write thrillers, uh, to write dramas. Yes, um, uh, science fiction and speculative is picking up. And if you see people who've been paid a lot of money, they are writing commercial. And, and I know a lot of you are reading commercial yes. books, you know, but somehow when you start writing, we all write, you know, like we are James Joyce. I am guilty <laughs> of that, but I, I blame the fact that I was a teacher of literature. So I don't think I, I would do anything else. So I, we have a lot of literary fiction that is dealing with weighty issues. But I would like to, to see somebody uh, writing uh, uh, detective stories, you know, out of Uganda. Uh, I would like to see somebody writing um, thrillers, you know, spy, th th that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, so that is where my dream goes, because then there are some readers who are still there in Uganda who will start to sit up and start reading. And look, uh, my, my, my sister, the serial killer. Oh, yeah, I really like that one. It yeah. did. It did so well. It did so well, mm. you know. So um, I think that that's one of the important things that I would like to see African uh, writing do. Um, have I answered your question? Yes, you have perfectly. So thank you. So we would love to read a romance novel set in the streets of Kampala. So if everyone uh -huh. has an idea, uh -huh. <laughs> Jennifer is right here. Um, and that concludes our part for the evening. Thank you for joining us on this captivating journey through the world of writers and storytelling. We hope you've been inspired, enlightened and filled with new ideas to fuel your own creative endeavors. If you enjoyed this workshop, and want to explore more insightful content, be sure to subscribe to our podcast, Ugandan Art Speaks Out. We have an array of, of episodes featuring interviews with renowned authors, creative artists, and literary discussions that will continue to spark your imagination. Thank you for being part of this conversation with Jennifer Mukumbi. Until next time, keep writing and let your words dance across the pages of eternity. Goodbye and happy writing. <laughs>